You're listening to Greater LA on KCRW, the show that connects you to the people and places of Southern California. I'm Saul Gonzalez of KQED's The California Report, sitting in for Steve Chiatakis, and let's start with some romance. For all the singles out there listening, you don't need me to tell you how difficult modern dating is, and the pandemic certainly didn't make it any easier. Just about everybody went to dating apps. A Chapman University study found approximately 96% of single people were using dating apps at the height of the pandemic. That number has decreased some, but a lot of relationships still start online. But what if you want to make an old-fashioned in-person connection? Well, here's one option. It's a monthly comedy dating show experience that's been shaking up an East Hollywood theater with laughs and love. KCRW's Kelsey Gante has the details. Welcome to Love Isn't Blind. Every month, dozens of singles gather at the comedy show Love Isn't Blind for an escape from the drear of online dating. Comedian Alison Goldberg is on stage revving up the crowd of singles. Her aim? Getting people off their phones and in the game. I think dating online is a travesty of humanity. It is a cesspool. It is atrocious. How many words can I come up with right now? But... But I'm on them. (laughs) The name of the show, Love Isn't Blind, is a riff on the Netflix series Love Is Blind. There, contestants try to find love without meeting face-to-face. But after the isolation of the pandemic and the rising popularity of online dating, Goldberg is all for face-to-face connections. And she's trying to create a better dating experience for women than what the apps have to offer. Now, normally this is the dating show where the men can't speak because men should be seen but not heard. (laughs) Many women I know have gotten used to subpar are online dating experiences. Boring dates, inconsistent communication, and ghosting are all par for the course. But at Love Isn't Blind, Goldberg flips the script with a feminist twist. Here, four men vie for the attention of a lucky bachelorette. A lot of people after these shows, they asked me, they said, Allie, when are you going to reverse it and have four women compete for one man? And my answer has always been, never. (laughs) Well, almost never. Occasionally, she experiments with queer versions. Or a one-night-only reunion special, like the one I went to in December. That time, four previous bachelorettes got to join in on the fun as contestants. In any format, there are plenty of games for everyone to get to know each other. Have you ever cheated? Yes. Some of the show segments include going through the contestants' phones and calling their parents. Hello? Hi, this is Allie. I really hope this is Hannah's dad. (laughs) Yes, it is. (laughs) By the end of the show, there's only one contestant left on stage for The Bachelor, and the winning couple disappears for a date. But for the rest of the crowd, the real fun begins at the after party. The venue transforms into a dance floor where the losing contestants join the crowd of singles ready to mingle. And with the help of music, a full bar, and designated wingmen in fairy costumes, it turns the show into an immersive dating experience for everyone involved. 
wingwoman Mary Jo Matta is handing out wristbands. The green one for single, red for taken, purple for poly. We have a yellow one, which means... And facilitating connections. We're sort of flitting about and, you know, introducing people who are curious about being introduced. And for some, like this evening's winning couple, Graham and Anary, they end up finding a spark between the jokes. It's so fascinating to, like, hear someone's father speak about them the first time that you've ever met them. Like, it's such an uh, insane and different experience than you normally get. And Anary feels the same. At the very least, I would like to go on a date and see where it leads. But I like him. It's so much more fun to go out and meet people and feel their energy. Other than just finding each other, Graham and Anary say that the real draw of the love isn't blind experience is the magnetic energy of the crowd. Being around people looking for love between laughs. I think there's a, an unfortunately transactional nature to the way that we've all started to connect. And there's something unpredictable and magnetic about just the human energy that I think we're all missing a bit of. And beyond just that, attendees can agree on one thing. I think a lot of the guys here are hot. I think some of the guys are really cute. There's some cute people here. If you're over 25. I honestly say I like the apps a little better. It's very much a lot of millennials here, and I'm 22. But even if the offline crowd isn't what you're used to, you may just find what you're looking for. Honestly, there's people that I might have swept left on on the apps, but then I meet them in person and it's a yes. Or at least a maybe, like let's at least go on a date. So if you're swiping through a sea of red flags on the apps, maybe give the in-person crowd a try at the next Love Isn't Blind. For KCRW, I'm Kelsey Gante. Coming up after the break, can Los Angeles ever find an alternative to cars to get around the city? And do many of us even want to? LA is transportation laboratory question mark. That's next. All right, we're back now with more of Greater LA. I'm Saul Gonzalez in for Steve Chiatakis. Tomorrow, we're going to bring you a story about safety and security on LA's metro system. But for today, we take a wider view of mobility in Los Angeles. I'm telling you absolutely nothing new when I say that cars are synonymous with the story of LA and how the city has grown and now looks and feels. After all, how many of you listening to me right now are in your car as you're stuck in traffic and inching along to get to your destination? So can LA ever break its dependence on the automobile as we've known it? And can it learn how to design the city for people first and vehicles second? Well, maybe. In a new book, Renewing the Dream, The Mobility Revolution and the Future of Los Angeles, a group of experts look at how LA is at the forefront of developing alternatives to the car and the car-centric metropolis. Joining us to discuss are the book's editor, James Sanders, and two contributors, Frances Anderton, KCRW listeners know her, and Matt Ducharme. Thanks all for joining us. Thank you, Saul. It's great to talk to you. Thank you. Thanks for having us. James, I'm going to start with you. So when it comes to L.A. and mobility, what's the dream we're trying to renew? Well, Los Angeles is uh, a complex city, as everyone knows, and actually is an overlay of several cities. 
uh, Christopher Hawthorne, the former chief design officer of, of Los Angeles, defined it in three waves, which we sort of adopted. Uh, wave one was the wave that built the city, which was the, uh, the streetcar and boulevard city of before World War II. And anybody who ever watched uh, Who Framed Roger Rabbit will know all about that. Uh, that city, the city of the big red Pacific electric cars and the uh, long endless boulevards that went everywhere. Uh, the second city, the city we're more familiar with, is the post-war city, the city of the freeway and the tract house of uh, 1950s and 1960s Los Angeles, which not only remade the region of Los Angeles, but became the model of cities around the world. Every modern city really based itself on the kind of decentralized car-oriented, single-family house-oriented model of urban development. But our argument is that since roughly the year 2000, those two models have been superseded by a third model, uh, a complexer, more uh, dense model, which involves uh, transit, new forms of mobility. Uh, you've got things like Uber and Lyft transforming the situation. You've got e-scooters, you've got e-bikes, you've got uh, on the horizon, autonomous vehicles, you've got electric vehicles coming in. So all of these changes create a situation where we think the city is uh, kind of up for grabs in terms of thinking about its future. You know, I'm on the freeways a lot. Traffic seems just as bad as it always has been. It's back to pre-pandemic levels. Um, so how are these changes manifesting themselves? Where are they? Well, one obvious way is the densification of the city, which is dramatic. The city that was once almost entirely uh, a city uh, 50 years ago, roughly, of single-family houses being built is now dramatically turning into a city of multiple dwellings, of apartment houses basically being built. Of the 23,000 new units that were permitted in 2023, uh, there were 13,000 uh, were five apartments or more, five houses or more, and only 1,387 were single-family. In other words... 10 to 1 of apartment buildings to new single-family dwellings. So the kind of iconic vision of the city is really changing, and you see it in other places too. I used to rent a car when I came to Los Angeles. Uh, nowadays, when you go to the Hertz uh, rental hall in LAX, it's often kind of deserted because people are saying, why bother rent a car when I could just take Uber everywhere? Hmm. Francis, in the book, you talk about the fundamental importance of parking lots and the history of parking lots to all of this and this issue. Uh, talk more about that. Well, I think that um, one thing that is a through line to the book, actually, is the degree to which parking the cars that get people to this single family based lifestyle um, is absolutely part and parcel of the development of Los Angeles to the point that an absolutely extraordinary amount of square footage of square miles in this region is giving is given over to um, to places to park the car, whether it's the single family home with the large driveway, whether it's the generous amount of curb space that's given over to parking. Yes, there is a big shift happening in terms of how the city's developed. I think we are layering on greater density. I think that greater density does require also that people change their mobility systems and that and that they do perhaps choose to use the mass transit system that's going back in that is also part of the sort of mobility revolution that James refers to however people aren't quite there yet so what we are really seeing is this is this sort of hybrid kind of density where 
we will see, yes, um, you know, multi-storey apartment buildings going up right by um, the emerging transit lines. You know, you, you know, as well as I do, you go to Culver City now, it's completely different. It's downtown from 25 years ago. However, there's still a good amount of parking that's being provided for these multifamily buildings because we're not quite at the point where people are able to sort of fully give up the old style. So I think we're in a very interesting sort of transitional stage. Um, indeed, um, people surrounding sort of planning and housing are all pushing for ways in which to pull back the parking mandates. You know, one of the one of the big factors in the shaping of this region and the forms, literally the forms our housing has taken are these parking mandates whereby starting in about the 1930s, um, pro property owners, developers are told how a parking minimum they have to provide. So it's something like one car per household, it becomes 1.5 cars per household. And these parking mandates have stymied actually a, a lot of creativity in how we might live in Los Angeles. And they've also been attached to commercial developments. So as a result, we have seen untold amounts of parking um, being provided and it has shaped a lifestyle. Yeah, and the idea there, right, is that if you reduce parking requirements, if you reduce the amount of parking spaces, that encourages people to try other options that don't involve the automobile, right? Yes, we do find ourselves in um, in somewhat of a political tussle because what will happen is um, a TOC, you know, transit-oriented communities, transit-oriented development, TOD, is, is being encouraged at a planning and a political level. That's, you know, put up the apartment buildings, buy the mass transit, take away the parking um, in, and thereby encourage people to sort of shift and change the way they use the city. But what happens is you'll have adjacent neighbourhoods of perhaps lower rise or single family neighbourhoods where, um, where the, the, the residents of that neighbourhood get, get nervous about a bunch of people moving in who don't have parking, but, but are they actually going to give up on the car? Well, no, they're probably not all going to give up on the car. So where are they going to park their cars? Well, they're going to park their cars probably in a side street, and that could be my street. And so there's, there's, there's a lot of tension surrounding um, the parking issue. Now, at the same time, there's a lot of creativity. Say, for example, the communal or the, or the collectively used parking structure. There are certainly young developers who are looking at how to perhaps do some lower density multifamily developments. That's sort of not the towers, you know, it's not even perhaps the seven storey or five to seven storey buildings. It's more like the two to three story buildings, perhaps in in lower rise neighborhoods where, where it can be where it can be penciled out and shoehorned in. And in those neighborhoods there, you know, developers are thinking about can we can we put a parking structure that's used by several different complexes? And so people are starting to have ideas that are really kind of transitional ideas, I think, trying to, trying to navigate the transition that we're in. Sure. Matt, hey, you've been very patient, so I want to turn to you. I understand you've helped create a couple of case studies for what a future LA might look like, or at least places in the future LA. Could you talk more about that? 
Yes, absolutely. Um, you know, what's interesting is we, we began um, producing a series of programs and studies really on the relationship between mobility, parking, land use and development in, in 2018 with, with James. And one of the things that uh, we are, are particularly proud of in this book is that it looks to the history of Los Angeles and then it projects forward. And so what we do is we look at actually the scale, the, the macro scale of the city of Los Angeles and look at things such as, well, what is really the opportunity of, of space and parking? And that's a significant impact in terms of the uh, um, the infrastructure um, and the fabric of, of the city of Los Angeles. But then we also look at the micro as well. <clears throat> so we look at individual sites and the impact really uh, importantly of, uh, of uh, on, on uh, communities and on people. So one uh, very good example of this, and it's a case study that, that kind of closes out the book, is called Recharge LA, which was uh, a part of Pump to Plug, um, which Christopher Hawthorne um, had created a symposium back in 2020 during the pandemic, looking at what happens when you convert uh, the gas station sites in the city of Los Angeles into EV charging stations. So what we looked at is, well, what, what could the potential of this be? The infrastructural um, aspect of, of charging your car, allowing for that mobility. You know, historically, we had looked at things like Googie architecture and the and and the uh, the gas stations that were really uh, acting as the decorated shedders. This this moment to almost advertise what's happening there and the democratization of mobility. And thinking about projecting forward with this new technology of EV charging and understanding what the potential could be. So, for instance, what we looked at is, you know, can you have a site that has uh, has the opportunity for a real flexibility of use? Because EV charging um, does not have the volatility of, say, a gas station, you could do a lot of different things with that particular site that you couldn't with a gas station. So we looked at an opportunity for a framework of, of really uh, creating different uses throughout the day and one instance, uh, you would be charging your car throughout the day, but then in another, we created this this uh, movable infrastructure that you will be able to see in the book um, that changes uh, and uses a screen actually to protect a movie screen throughout the day. So understanding that this has had a, such a profound impact on the fabric of the city of Los Angeles and thinking about what a new technology and infrastructure around mobility could be and what those opportunities could be. And, and can I just step back here and maybe play the role of the skeptic? I mean, I mean, all of you have your criticisms of Los Angeles and how the city has evolved in, in, in a wrong way in, in a lot of ways when it comes to transportation and urban planning. But you acknowledge that there are a lot of people who kind of dig the city. I mean, they like it, or at least they've made a compact where they say to themselves, you know, yes, I may have an hour or two hour commute to Santa Clarita from Los Angeles. But when I get to Santa Clarita, I got my front yard. I got my backyard. I'm willing to pay that price. Do you, do you acknowledge that there are a lot of people who think that way and they don't want to see any serious changes? Um, I, th I think you're absolutely spot on, Sol. I think that the lifestyle that Los Angeles offered, which was an alternative to dense, packed, often rather polluted cities, was absolutely seductive. And it remains to be, it remains very seductive. It also is now out of reach for most people financially because there simply isn't the virgin land on which to create that lifestyle. And it also has reached the end of the road in terms of there being no more space. So it's become very jammed. And so, yes, one does sit in the car for two hours getting to Santa Clarita. However, it is still a very hard dream to relinquish. It truly is. And that is why this transition that has to happen because the region can't go any other way. But nonetheless, it is 
it is it's 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 a it's a difficult one because because it is demanding of people to actually give up on that dream and embrace another dream. I'm an advocate for multifamily living. I think there's a lot of benefits to multifamily living in LA. <laughs> I really and I think there's one we have a wonderful legacy of housing types that support that. However, that doesn't mean that that's what everybody wants. And what is, what, is, what is on the shoulders now of planners, politicians, designers, like the team that's on this call today, is to really sell, the new, or sell, this, sell this other dream and make it as alluring as the one that you've just laid out. Yeah. And James, let me come back to you. And that is, you know, when it comes to these solutions, Let's say LA and Southern California does everything you think it should do. At the well, first off, what timeline are we looking at? And then number two, um, how many people does it really affect? Are we just talking about solutions that end of, at the end of the day they affect the, the 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 problems, things like congestion at at the at the margins? But if we all come back and talk together in the year 2050, there's still going to be a hell of a lot of traffic on the 405 freeway at six o'clock. Well, we acknowledge that in the book. There's six million cars on the road in the region, in the Los Angeles region, and uh, they're not going anywhere, so to speak. Uh, but as Francis points out, you know, we can't build any new freeways uh, for a whole host of reasons, uh, environmental and otherwise. So we're we're pretty fixed with the amount of capacity that we have on these roads. Uh, we absolutely acknowledge that you know this is not this does not mean that everybody in Los Angeles has to change their way of life. I also want to point out that when you talk about eliminating parking minimums, developers will decide. It allows it it gives freedom to developers to decide how much parking they think ought to be there, and they're not fools. They will they will find out how much parking uh, is mandated. But you know, no, absolutely, it goes to the heart of the tension that is in. The name of the book. We acknowledge the power of that dream. Uh, we do point out that there is such a vast amount of space, just for example, given over to parking across the city of Los Angeles and the region, that you could house a million and a half people at existing densities if you were to simply build on the surface parking lots that we uh, currently have, and that's all across the city. And you can develop them as you want, but no skyscrapers in single-family districts, uh, and it would change substantially the fabric of the city. And yes, finally, it will take decades. And, you know, as, as Francis says, this is a question of, of transition, and, and this is a city building, and it it unfolds over decades and indeed centuries. So we're looking at something now that, that may unfold over generations for our children and our grandchildren. All right. The book is Renewing the Dream, the Mobility Revolution, and the Future of Los Angeles. James Sanders is the editor. Francis Anderton and Matt Ducharme contributed to the collection. And by the way, if you want to learn more, you can catch James and Francis in conversation with UCLA's Donald Shoup. By the way, he's kind of the world's expert on parking. Uh, that's this Friday at Book Soup. Thank you all for joining us on Greater LA. Thank you. Thank you, Saul. Thank you, Saul. Thank you, Saul. That was an interesting conversation. I hope you thought so too. Tomorrow, we return to transportation in response to crime and safety concerns on LA mass transit that surged during the pandemic. Metro is making a big push to improve the ridership experience and also help the many homeless people who use transit for temporary shelter. Jump on the train with me as we all find out more together. You can check out the show online anytime at kcrw.com backslash GLA. You can also leave feedback there, good, bad, or otherwise, and provide a story idea. 
Media. That's KCRW.com GLA. Juliana Mayo, Zoe Matthew, Kelsey Dante, Eddie Sun, Sonia Geis, Ray Guarner, Phil Richards, Amy Talk, Carlos Ramirez, Christine Camino, Michael Vogel, and Christian Bardal all made the show possible. It takes a village. I'm your humble guest host, Saul Gonzalez. Thanks so much for listening, and have a good evening. Talk to you again tomorrow. Tomorrow.